Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Ask a Better Question. It's based upon the lectionary readings from March 24, 2019. In his beautiful book of narrative theology, In the Shelter of Now, poet and healer Padre Gotuma describes the Buddhist concept of mu, or unasking. If someone asks a question that's too small, too flat, too confining, Otuama writes, you can answer with this word mu, which means unask the question, because there's a better question to be asked. A wiser question, a deeper question, a truer question. A question that expands possibility and resists fear. If I could sum up this week's gospel reading in a single word, I would adopt Otuma's mu. As St. Luke describes a scene, some folks come to Jesus with headline news of horror and tragedy. Pontius Pilate has slaughtered a group of Galilean Jews and mingled their blood with the blood of sacrificial lambs. Meanwhile, the Tower of Siloam has collapsed, crushing and killing 18 people. The reporters accompany these brutal accounts with a question as old as the human race. Why? Why did these terrible things happen? Why is there so much pain in the world? Why does a good God allow human suffering? Jesus' response? Mu. Ask a better question. For 2,000 years, questions of theodicy have plagued Christianity, and for 2,000 years, we Christians have failed to find answers to satisfy us. Yet we can't stop asking the questions. We still crave a theory of everything when bad stuff happens. We still look for formulas to eradicate the mystery. Everything in us still longs to make sense of the senseless. As Luke's Gospel makes clear, the people who ask Jesus their versions of the why question already have an answer in mind. They don't approach Jesus' blank slate. They show up hoping to confirm what they already believe. That is, they come expecting Jesus to verify their deeply held assumption that people suffer because they're sinful, that folks get what they deserve, that bad things happen to bad people. It's tempting for us 21st century Christians to look at such beliefs and feel smugly superior in comparison. But how different, really, are the beliefs we hold about human suffering? When the unspeakable happens, what default settings do we revert to? Nothing happens outside of God's perfect will. God is testing and refining your character through this tragedy. This is the refiner's fire. The Lord never gives anyone more than they can bear. Buck up, other people have it worse. This veil of tears is not your true home. Everything will be restored in eternity. The problem with every one of these answers is that they hold us apart from those who suffer. They inoculate us from the searing work of solidarity, empathy, and compassion. They keep us from embracing our common lot, our common brokenness, our common humanity. When Jesus challenges his listeners' assumptions and tells them to repent before it's too late, I think part of what he's saying is this. Any question that allows us to keep a sanitized distance from the mystery and reality of another person's pain is a question we need to unask. Mu, Jesus says to the folks who bring him the news about Pilate and Siloam. Mu, he says to us when we wax eloquent about them and us, their sinfulness and our piety, their conservative backwardness and our progressive sophistication. Mu, you're asking the wrong questions. You're mired in irrelevance. You're losing your life in your effort to save it. Start over again. Ask a better question. Go deep. Be brave. Okay, but what is the better question? If asking why won't get us anywhere, what kind of question will? In typical fashion, Jesus addresses the problem with a story. A landowner had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, Jesus tells his listeners. 
One day the landowner went looking for fruit on the tree and found none. Incensed, he confronted his gardener. For three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, he said, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it waste the soil? But the gardener begged his employer for more time. Sir, let the tree alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What an odd story to tell at such a moment. What on earth does a fruitless fig tree have to do with Pilate's heinous killing spree, or with the massive technological failure that toppled the Tower of Siloam? What is Jesus saying? Well, for starters, he's saying, engage in story rather than platitude. Platitudes are flat. Formulas are reductive. Theories don't heal. And questions that call for shallow answers aren't worth asking in the face of tragedy. But stories, stories open up possibility. Stories include unmake and transform us. Why did those Galilean Jews die? Why did the tower fall? Okay, sit down. Let me tell you about a fig tree. The parable Jesus tells invites questions in several directions at once. I can't possibly exhaust them. None of us can. But here are a few to get us started. In what ways am I, like the absentee landowner, standing apart from where life and death actually happen? How am I refusing to get my hands dirty, wallowing in futility and despair, pronouncing judgments I have no right to pronounce? Am I prone to look for waste, loss, and scarcity in the world, or for potential and possibility? Where in my life or in the lives of others have I prematurely called it quits, saying, there's no life here worth cultivating, cut it down? In what ways am I like the fig tree, unenlivened, unnourished, unable or unwilling to nourish others? In what ways do I feel helpless or hopeless, ignored or dismissed? What kinds of tending would it take to bring me back to life? Am I willing to receive such intimate, consequential care? Will I consent to change? Might I dare to flourish in a world where I have thus far been invisible? In what ways am I like the gardener? Where in my life am I willing to accept Jesus' invitation to go elbow deep into the muck and manure? Where do I see life where others see death? How willing am I to pour hope into a project I can't control? Am I brave enough to sacrifice time, effort, love, and hope into this tree, this relationship, this cause, this tragedy, this injustice, with no guarantee of a fruitful outcome? Can I, in the words of Bishop Ken Untener, be the prophet of a future not my own? I won't lie, I'm a pro at asking the why question. Why is the question I stick in God's face whenever bad stuff happens? I ask it more often than all other questions combined. I ask because I want to understand. I ask because I'm afraid. I ask because mystery unnerves me. And yet every time I ask why, Jesus says, moo. He says it because why is just plain not a life-giving question. Why hasn't the fig tree produced fruit yet? Um, here's the manure and here's a spade. Get to work. Why do terrible, painful, completely unfair things happen in this world? Um, go deep, go weep with someone who's weeping. Go fight for the justice you long to see. Go confront evil where it needs confronting. Go learn the art of patient, hope-filled tending. Go cultivate beautiful things. Go look your own sin in the eye and repent of it while you can. In short, imagine a deeper story, ask a better question, live a better answer, and do it now. Why? Because there is no us in them, because there are no guarantees, because all of us are beloved, all of us are perishing, and all of us need the care of a hopeful, patient gardener. Ask a better question. Do it now.
For books this week, Dan reviews Ellen Allman's Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology. Back in 1979, Ellen Allman was in a Radio Shack store when she discovered and then bought a TRS-80 computer. What was this strange machine? What did it do? She knew nothing about computers. In fact, her honors thesis at Cornell had been on Macbeth. But she soon discovered that she loved the deep pleasure of exploring machines. Allman taught herself to code, became very good at that narrow but powerful skill, and ended up living in San Francisco at the epicenter of the coding world for 40 years. She was connected enough to know Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, on a first-name basis, and be offered a job on the spot when she met them at a party back in 1999. But Allman never drank the Kool-Aid of the techno-totalist that now defines our culture. Part of her critical distance to the coding world that she loved so much came from being a woman in a field that is dominated by men. Early on, she observed the toleration of eccentric behavior, the oddball habits, the weird cult of a meritocracy that rewarded rogue behavior, and the outright disdain for anyone who was far from the machine, in contrast to the coders who were close to the machine. She experienced the engineering loneliness that was part of being a premier programmer. She lamented the disconnect between a coder's online public persona and their real private self. Allman also came of coding age as the internet boom was just beginning, and very early on she feared what she was seeing and experiencing. The baby world narcissism, the glorification of the self alone at home, the wild optimism and religious fervor of the technocrats. She saw up close the endless hyperbole, the exaggerated individualism, the illusions of endless choice, the faith that technological problems are solved by technology and with more technology, and especially the disintermediation that removed all intermediaries, like other human beings, from the world of the internet. These 17 essays give an insider's critical account of the consequences of our technological society. We now live in a world that is defined by powerful technical means that are virtually unconstrained by any greater ends. Most of these essays are quite early, the first of which is from 1994. These earlier essays brim with both, with both nostalgia and prescience, especially about the power of surveillance by corporations and governments. To take just one example, way back in 1998, she wrote, I fear for the world the internet is creating. The last five essays were written from 2012 to 2017. The New York Times listed this as one of the top books of 2017. For movies, Dan reviews Walk With Me. The novelist David Foster Wallace lamented how we now live in a culture of total noise. I recently read a newspaper article about a man who was searching for a few places where there were literally no sounds at all, an almost impossible task. And what about the cacophony of voices inside one's heads, the passions and the emotions? This movie explores a refreshing alternative from the perspective of the famous Vietnamese Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh, who, among other things, has published more than 100 books as a peace activist. Exiled from his country in 1966, he founded a meditation center in southwest France, called Plum Village, where much of this documentary is filmed. The movie is narrated by Benedict Cumberbatch, who reads passages from Hans' fragrant palm leaves, journals from 1962 to 1966. It's inspiring to watch the monks work at the discipline of mindfulness, of living fully present in the here and now. It's not easy, though. A distracted younger novice yawns and looks around. A young woman complains that she's bored with her repetitive tasks and kids banging on a piano during a weekend retreat have to be quieted. For more on this important subject, see Dan's reviews of the book by Erling Kagi, translated from the Norwegian by Becky Crook, Silence in the Age of Noise, 
in the marvelous movie Integrate Silence about the remote and reclusive monastery Grand Chartreuse. Christians have their own traditions of silence, of course. Be still and know that I am God. One thinks of the Trappist monks who take a vow of silence, or the Eastern Orthodox mystical tradition of contemplative prayer. In one of his better sound bites, Kegi appeals to the French polymath Pascal, quote, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Indeed. And finally, for poems are this third Sunday in Lent, Mary Oliver's What I Have Learned So Far. Meditation is old and honorable, so why should I not sit every morning of my life on the hillside, looking into the shining world? Because, properly attended to, delight, as well as havoc, is suggestion. Can one be passionate about the just, the ideal, the sublime, and the holy, and yet commit to no labor in its cause? I don't think so. All summations have a beginning. All effect has a story. All kindness begins with the sown seed. Thought buds towards radiance. The gospel of light is the crossroads of indolence or action. Be ignited or be gone. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 24th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.